Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello. Welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and talk with us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. On this episode of Off the Page, Zach Williams reads his short story, Mousetraps. Zach Williams's debut story collection, Beautiful Days, is forthcoming from Doubleday in 2024. He is a 2021 to 2023 Wallace Stegner Fellow in Fiction at Stanford University and holds an MFA from New York University. His work has been featured in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. At the end of an aisle of bolts and nails, I turned the corner and came upon the boy. No older than 15, I guessed, in black slacks and a gray Rugolos hardware golf shirt. He stood all caved in, shifting his weight back and forth, hair pressed to his scalp with some ointment that shone under the fluorescent tubes. I cleared my throat. I'm looking for mousetraps, the kind that don't kill. He frowned, cocked his head, then nodded, turned and moved deeper into the interior, his left knee buckling with each step. It was one of those cramped little neighborhood hardware stores. Merchandise stacked floor to ceiling, box fans and window sealant, key rings and copper wire, caulk, unguents, paintbrushes, batteries and screws, all in a tangle of passageways like a nest. From the store's crowded center, you couldn't see the windows, and it came to feel like the street was above and you were way down in a hole where all that hardware had fallen. We made turn after turn until the shelves finally broke to reveal the register. The man behind the counter looked up from his phone, bags under his eyes. Along the wall, packaged things hung on silver hooks. The boy touched them one by one, inquisitively, making a faint hum of deliberation in his throat. Anthony, sighed the man at the register. Anthony, what are you looking for? The boy turned. When he spoke, he stuttered. Mousetraps. Anthony, said the man, shaking his head, pointing. They're right in front of you. The boy looked at the wall, then back at the man. Anthony, he said, they're right in front of your face. They're right there. His pointed finger hung in the air. In front of your face, Anthony, Jesus Christ. He groaned, pushed himself up, walked around the counter and over to us, reached to a spot on the wall behind me that neither the boy nor I had noticed. Dozens of mousetraps, all colors and shapes. Mousetraps, the man said. We got the victory and the cat's eye. Some people like those a little better. Easier to reuse, harder to catch a finger. But with the victory, if you don't mind, you throw the whole thing out. With the mouse, I mean. They're less than a dollar a piece. How bad's the infestation? Well, I said, I've just seen the one. He's little, like a a baby. I was thinking, do you have anything that might not kill the mouse? Then he looked me up and down, as if somehow he just noticed me for the first time. He wrinkled his brow. Doesn't kill? He asked. Like a humane trap, or what do they call them? A catch and release? Catch him release, he said, and grinned at the boy. Like a fisherman, Anthony. I looked over my shoulder, wishing for a glimpse of the street. 
the way he studied me, I felt naked somehow, insufficient. Like what we all understood but couldn't say was that I should have known not to come here into this world of men and tools, practicalities, hard measurements, the unbending laws of real things. I wished I'd dressed differently. I wished I'd worn different shoes. He said, you want humane traps? Do you have them? You want to set the mouse loose where, in the park? At the playground? Probably not the playground. I don't know, I hadn't thought about it. Do they work, the humane traps? Do you stock them? I turned to search the wall. He looked at the boy, then at me, shrugging apologetically. For those, I'd have to go into the back. Now he spoke carefully. He seemed to have come to some judgment. There was a new ease in his body, a new subtlety to his speech. Why don't you come with me? Into the back? Yeah, he said, right here. Anthony, show him. The boy shuffled down the aisle to the right of the register, turned and was out of sight. Back there, I said. Yeah, of course, back there, he pointed. Halfway down the aisle, I turned to face him again, gestured in the direction I'd seen the boy go. There? He nodded. When I reached the end of the aisle at the store's back wall, I turned and saw Anthony, standing with ankles crossed, holding open a door. The small space on the other side was dimly lit. I could hear the man's unhurried footsteps approaching from behind. This is where the mouse traps are? I called back. He rounded the corner and pointed again. This is the owner's office. I had to duck to enter, and when my eyes adjusted, I saw an elderly man in an ancient swivel chair behind a desk on which sat a 19-inch television. I hadn't seen one like it in years. I didn't know you could still use one, even. People's court was on. He looked up at me, brows arched, then shot his eyes at Anthony. Lewis said, Anthony explained, once he'd freed the loo from his mouth. And suddenly he, Lewis, I guessed, was behind me, close enough that I could feel his breath on my neck when he spoke. Pop, he said, this gentleman was inquiring after mousetraps, humane mousetraps, the kind that don't kill. The elderly man nodded, then pushed a half stand. He wore a white Oxford shirt, unbuttoned at the top to reveal a spotted chest and suspenders. Take a seat. Let me turn off this noise. Reaching for the television switch, he maintained something of his seated posture. I'm Mr. Rugolo, he said. It's nice to meet you, I said. He said, mousetraps. Yes, I swallowed. I'd like to buy some. Let's talk first, just a little. You have mice? Just one that I've seen. He considered it, working his jaw. How do you know it's the same one, each time, I mean? Well, I guess I don't, but I think it is. He's little, a baby. Always, he said, there are more than one. You see one, but there's more than one. I told him I understood. And you don't want to kill the mouse. You want a special kind of trap. You want to release it where? In the park? At the playground? I asked the same thing, Pop, said Lewis, suddenly jocular. Didn't I? Hey, what's your name, anyhow? Oh, of course, said Rugolo. How rude. My name's Jeremy, I said. And because they watched expectantly, I added Booth. Jeremy Booth. Anthony re-entered with two paper cups and set one before me, one before Rugolo. Please. Rugolo took up his cup delicately in two hands. Coffee. Oh, that's okay. I'm not very thirsty. I insist. Watery and sharp, the coffee made a strange perfume of the air below my nose. Very good, I nodded. Thank you very much. Rugolo said, are you scared of mice? The second sip caught in my throat. I coughed into my elbow. Scared? 
He peered at me over his coffee, lips poised at the steaming rim. I looked again over my shoulder. Lewis watched me intently. Well, no, I'm not, but suddenly I felt the need to defend myself. It's a simple question of hygiene. I won't have them in my apartment. I don't think that's unreasonable. Yes, yes, of course, said Rugolo. Though it's not your apartment, strictly speaking. You rent a young man like you? He shrugged. And some might say it's the building itself that invites the mice. It's cracks and fissures, the imperfections that make together a record of the building's life. Do you know when your building was constructed, Jeremy Booth? The smile in his voice had made my name sound like a child's. No, not precisely. It's a brownstone. Aren't they all from the, aren't they like 19th century? The 19th century, he repeated and smiled at Lewis. And you moved to the city when? 2013? I knew that was right, though. Under his gaze in that humid little room, it was hard to focus. I felt somehow unsure. We've been in business 58 years. My father opened this shop, and this is my son. This is Lewis. He nodded at him. I looked back at Anthony standing in the doorway. And your grandson? No, said Rugolo sadly. Then he put down his cup. Jeremy Booth, if you aren't afraid of the mouse, why don't you want to kill it? Something in the question shocked me. Well, I said, but found myself unable to go on. Rugolo stared directly into my eyes. I just don't want to hurt the mouse. I don't want to hurt anything, really. The mouse hasn't done anything wrong. I don't know. It's what seems right to me. It's what seems natural. Rugolo nodded gravely. My answer had embarrassed me. I took a long sip of coffee. Then it struck me. The ridiculousness of the whole situation. Pardon me, I said, but do you have humane mousetraps to sell me or not? Oh, I find it's a harder question than that, he said, because I want to warn you, Jeremy Booth, about the humane traps. You must check them regularly. They may not kill the mouse, but all the same, they frighten him. You understand? The mouse will breathe very fast in the trap. His heart rate will accelerate like this. He thumped himself rapidly with a stiff open hand. He will urinate and defecate. If you do not check a so-called humane trap, it will kill the mouse just as surely as any wire trap. Secondly, if you catch a mouse and set it free too close, it will run right back into the building. Mice live in groups. They're social creatures. They have families. They have children, Jeremy. The mouse will run right back into the building, and if he can't, if he cannot find a way, he will only keep trying over and over ceaselessly. His life will become a, a torture, a psychic torture. So you must take the mouse away. One mile, at least. He held up his index finger. You should walk with the captured mouse deep into the park, out to the far side where the Jamaicans live, okay? And set the mouse free there. But you gotta go quick, or the mouse might suffocate as you walk. And of course, he said, after all your efforts, this too could mean death for the mouse, to be in a strange place so far from where we started. Is it better to kill the mouse all at once with a snap? He clapped his hands, then shrugged his shoulders. I was beginning to feel very strange. The coffee had nauseated me. Everything was too close. I could hear the breath whistling in Lewis's nose, and somehow things seemed in motion, like the room was traveling. I squirmed in my seat, trying to blink the sensation away. Rugolo stared into the dead TV screen, deep in thought. People set mousetraps with cheese or peanut butter, he said. But do you know what works better? String. Why? Because mice need small, soft things like bits of string to build their nests, to build homes for their children. How long have you been living here, Jeremy? When did you move to the city? I couldn't think. I shook my head. I, I don't know exactly. Rugolo looked up at Lewis, then reached for his coffee. And you're not... If you don't mind me asking, you're not at work today. This is a weekday. I work freelance. I'm, I write copy, advertising copy. 
An ad man, he said and grinned. You didn't do the Super Bowl one, did you? The baby, the baby with the, with the Lewis. You know which one I mean? The baby with the top hat, Lewis said. The baby with the top hat. Did you write that one? We laughed and laughed. No, I said, removing my glasses, pinching the bridge of my nose. I was near to being sick. Jeremy, I want to tell you, I had a mouse once in the bathroom. I set traps, Victor. Well, this mouse, after several days successfully evading them, jumped somehow into the bucket of cleaning supplies we keep beside the toilet. And he couldn't get out. He curled his lips, shook his head. Couldn't get out. I removed the cleaning supplies, and with the bucket, I walked outside. I watched him as I went down the street, cowering there. His tail was all tensed, like this. He made a gesture with his hands, like closing them tight around a length of rope. The bucket swung as I walked, Jeremy. I gave it no thought, but the mouse was intelligent enough or clever enough. The word you might like to describe the mouse's mind, his thinking, I don't know. But the mouse was capable, you see, of apprehending that at the end of the bucket's backward arc, the angle was favorable to his jumping. And so before I was able to get to the park, he did so. He jumped. Outside, he didn't look so big. I watched him there on the sidewalk, nighttime, bitter cold. And in his face, I saw something like bewilderment. I would have expected him to dash straight off and be gone, an escape worthy of an animal, you understand? Rushing, rushing, the thoughtless speed of instinct. But he only looked around, left, right, trying to understand what had happened. I don't know how their lives are, the mice. Possibly he'd never been outside, once, ever. Perhaps they live many generations without seeing the street. He sighed. The mouse took several uncertain steps toward a pile of dead leaves. He nosed them cautiously. He slunk off the curb, nestled under the back tire of a parked car. He stood up, put his two little front paws on the tire. He was in a state of amazement. Rugolo's face seemed too big somehow. His whole head did. The room was getting darker. Strange mirages bred at the corners of my vision. So it's not easy, Rugolo said about the traps. Some might say the question is not so much about the traps themselves or the mice, but about you. What kind of man you are? He leaned back, crossed his legs. Which is what? I shook my head. What? What kind, Jeremy? I don't know. You don't know? I shook my head again, eyes closed, saliva pulling in my mouth. He slapped his hand hard on the desk. Are you unable to kill the object of your terror? Then what? What do you believe, Jeremy? Don't you know? How can you not know? Help me to understand. I said I was sorry, but I had to leave. When I stood, the room pitched. Now there were two doorways. From which had I entered? My legs buckled. I knocked into the table and sent my coffee onto the floor. Oh, God, I said. I'm so sorry. But I knew if I bent down, I'd be unable to stand back up. Anthony can clean it, I offered. I didn't know why no one spoke. I looked from face to face. Then I lurched toward the exit. The hall beyond it was dark and narrow. It didn't feel right, but I thought maybe it had become night somehow and the store was closed, all the lights off, and soon I'd see the glow of the street. Behind me were footsteps, Lewis following at a distance. Lewis, I turned and shouted. He walked slowly, head bowed as if in thought, hands in his pockets. I pitched ahead. It was too dark to see. I rubbed my eyes and slapped at my face. But then out ahead, I saw something. It's sunlight, I called back, triumphant. The path warmed with the light, and then I was walking in mud, pungent, thick with mosquitoes. I pulled myself along on branches and vines. It was hot, summertime, deep and ripe. 
Lewis, I called. Lewis, you see, I'm nearly there. The trees grew greener, louder, birds and cicadas. Mud covered me to my knees. Lewis walked beside me now, and below us was some little tributary, a road running above the embankment on its far side. I heard a car and turned to watch it pass, a blue station wagon. Can they see me, Lewis? Branches and leaves struck my face. Thorns caught my trousers. They can see you. And they'll stop? They may. Keep walking. By dusk, we were in a wide green cornfield, early stars overhead. Beyond that, I saw headlights on a long highway. Lewis, I said, I need to rest just a little while. I sank to the ground, chest heaving, eyes closed. All right, Lewis? But Lewis was gone. Winds cut the field. Cars sang down the highway. I'll go for help, I thought. I'll stand in the road, waving my hands. Lewis, come back, I called. In the distance, gas prices glowed over the prairie. A truck plaza. That's where I'd go. Hitch a ride. Find a room. Take a shower. In the morning, I could find breakfast, see about a change of clothes and maybe some work. Get back on my feet. I take my time. When I heard of something better, I'd move on to the next town. If I met the right person, I could start a family. Raise my kids up. Put away what I could. Be a good father. Be nice to people. Stop to give directions. Leave a dollar in the tip jar. Weekends. Holidays. Overtime when I could get it. It might not be so bad. Hot water and a good hard bed. Honest and simple. A new life. And more or less, that's what I did. Hey, Zach. Thank you for being here on Off the Page and sharing that story Mousetraps with us. I'd just like to start by asking, you know, very standard, what was the inspiration for this story? The inspiration for this story... Well, the, the reason that I wanted to write the story is this image I had in my head of the guy walking or stumbling through some weird place where he didn't know where he was. And this other guy who turned out to be Lewis was walking behind him very calmly with his hands in his pockets. And the one guy knew what was up and the other guy didn't. That was like the impetus for the story, as weird as that sounds. That was like the image that I wanted to get down somehow or was chasing somehow. And then we used to live in Brooklyn and I, I was thinking about this hardware store that was down the street from us it was really sort of claustrophobic in there and it always made me kind of uncomfortable. So I don't know, I probably took that kind of discomfort that I always felt <laughs> in that story and linked it to that image in my mind of the one person following behind the other. And that's where it came from, I think. What do you see as the source of Rugolo's disdain for our narrator? They seem to, especially the patriarch, seems to challenge him on every little thing from whether or not it's really his apartment to what he's doing not at work in the middle of the day. Among other things, it reminds me a little bit of one of those Flannery O'Connor stories where there's some sort of schmushy liberal character who's just like consistently psychologically tortured by a backwoods cretin. <laughs> How did you understand the Rugolo's attitude toward Jeremy? Well, for a long time, because I started this story a few years ago and I really tried deliberately not to think about it. I didn't want to write a story that was political or scanned too easily a certain way or something. I think that what Jeremy Booth is feeling probably is a certain kind of anxiety about this adulthood that he inhabits. 
which maybe that's something that's common to people my age or something where my grandparents were in the Second World War. And then it's like everything was within very recent family memory. It was like this very, very different kind of existence. I always grew up hearing stories about the war and things like that. And then it was the 90s and we were watching Ninja Turtles and things like that. And I think it was maybe it was harder to feel that we'd matured or aged the right way or appropriately or the way that people before us had. That's maybe what the story was tapping into, that feeling in me. The story does not have a thesis statement. And I, I tried to write the story if I could without thinking about it. And I see those things in the story now, but I tried if I could to write it without putting them in there on purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, the conflict reads as being maybe slightly about gentrification because there's the reference to, you know, him having moved to the neighborhood fairly recently versus this store that's been around for 50, 60 years. But but more than that, it seemed like it was about masculinity in a way. This kind of hypocrisy of the humane mousetrap, like, oh, well, I'll just send the mouse out into the world. It'll have a great life, like a Disney cartoon. And Mr. Rugo's like, well, he'll probably defecate in terror and then, you know, be a, die in the park, right? It's just your your ego and your inability to do tough masculine things that's leading you to this sort of BS moral position. And it was really funny, the sort of merciless way that he skewers him and unveils all his hypocrisy. <laughs> I like that a lot. I like the hypocrisy of the mousetrap. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to use that next time somebody asks me about the story. The work of yours that I've read often deals with adjacent to reality situations and it often seems to work with elements of the irrational in ways. And you just mentioned a few minutes ago that you were trying not to think about thesis statements or ideas. I wonder then what it is you do find yourself thinking about when you're drafting. Because this is something I feel like I have a hard time explaining to students. If you're not thinking rationally, then sort of how do you know to set a foot in this direction or that direction? The impulse for the story is a feeling that I want to set down somewhere. Maybe it's connected to something I'm trying to work out in my head, like what my relationship to this hardware store where we used to live was. I try to have an impulse toward it. At that point, see some part of it or see some gesture that's happening between two characters. Start from there and then realize that the scene you've been writing should be in the middle of the story and the beginning really is somewhere else. Then once you have something, you can just start editing it. One decision following another that you're hopefully not making too super consciously. And then Later you go back and you're like, oh, right, right, right. Cause I was thinking about masculinity and my granddad or whatever else. But so I'm thinking really hermetically about the words on the page and the feeling they conjure. Everything I read when I was a kid was science fiction. I just started rewatching the X-Files again. And that was so big when I was a kid and the supernatural or the unreal, it just seems like a very natural thing to include. I wouldn't want to cut myself off from it. I get feedback to the extent of it doesn't make sense or I don't understand. Those things never concern me. I'm not interested in those concerns, often to a fault. <laughs> well, it's so interesting to me to hear you say at the beginning of this conversation that you started in a way with that close to ending image of Jeremy walking through the mud and weeds with Lewis, because that's really, in my experience of the story, when it, it fully jumps into a non-realist space. And I'm curious, did you find yourself when you were drafting this, did you know that it was probably gonna to go to that sort of space, that the walls were gonna melt away? I think that was baked into the very, very beginning of the concept of it for me. I had a little thing of notes, and the very first thing I ever wrote in the thing of notes was, it's about the neighborhood and about the psychedelic discomfort of these kinds of mundane interactions. So that's it. 
that's where it came from. Well, and I think you do a really great job of building that psychedelic discomfort out of really mundane things initially. I mean, I was worried when he kept going down the dark, shadowy corridor to the back office and he kept saying, is this it? Is this it? Like, are they going to murder him back there? I mean, it suddenly felt charged with with menace. I was thinking that when I read it too, because when I'm writing, I'm so close to it, I know that he's not going to get murdered or anything like that. But suddenly now I was like, oh, this might read really differently. But I mean, I think it really works because there is this persistent sense of unease that comes from the way that Mr. Rugolo interrogates him, that comes from the coffee that he doesn't want to drink, but sort of has to drink, that has that sharp, watery taste of bad percolator coffee. Everything just feels uneasy in an everyday way. And then it goes to a different plane at the end. But I really believe that Jeremy has become psychologically susceptible to these guys. You had mentioned that this was sort of a work in progress. Do you think that the ending will stay what it is. Yeah, the problem with this sort of ending is it works a couple of times and then you can't do it more than maybe twice in a collection. I would do it all the time if I didn't watch myself. In some ways, it's an off-ramp. I'm planning on including this in my collection of stories, which is forthcoming and I'm editing it now. And I've been thinking about maybe changing it or extending it or making it longer. I think that what helps you get away with an ending like this is also that the story is relatively short. If it were 35 pages and then he just ended up in another universe at the end, there might be more of a feeling of that's not playing by the rules or something. But I feel like you have some attachment to a certain material reality you've established. Whereas I think a 10 page story like this, I can have a more fable like or fairy tale like quality that can maybe let you be more playful. But the other thing I really felt is that he's literally coming out of his own mousetrap at the end or his own nest. I mean, you described the hardware store at the beginning as being like a nest. And there's this sense at the end of now he sees the light and is getting free of something. It almost feels like in their creepy way that these guys are, are freeing him in some ways. He's not gonna sit on his couch all day on Slack ordering $18 salads He's going to like get a real job and work in a factory. It's kind of like this dream of traditional masculinity he achieves at the end, for better or for worse. <laughs> but maybe it's what he needs. Yeah. Well, since you mentioned it, can you talk, if you would like, a little bit about the experience of editing a whole collection? What it's like putting together stories, arranging them, seeing them as a book rather than individual pieces? What's that been like? Yeah, I'm not through the process yet, so I'm learning about it a lot. Um, a lot of these stories that are going to be in the book, I started them when I was doing my MFA at NYU, and I had no idea. It seemed so extraordinary to me that I might ever publish anything anywhere. So I didn't think of it this way exactly, but just aesthetically, whenever I would start one story, then the next story I would begin, I would want it to be some kind of reaction against the previous one. I think in my mind, I was thinking that the stories that I was working on might sit together like songs on an album. So in my head, the things that I was writing were always going to be part of something. And then when I came out here to Stanford, the stories I've been starting since then, it was always clear to me that they felt different and were not part of the previous collection. I worked on these stories for a really long time. The oldest story in the collection I started in 2015. It's interesting to hear you feel a kind of dispassion about some of the pieces because you're so familiar with them and they're so established, even if you're still changing them. It's also really interesting that distinction between writing versus preparing something for publication. I never thought about audience when I was writing these things in their initial phases. 
because at a very basic level, I would have felt presumptuous to imagine that anybody might ever want to read these things. So it's kind of nice to feel far enough away from it that I feel like, cool, like I worked really hard on these things. This story, Mousetraps, is kind of an interesting one. It's kind of a nice one, actually, because it's short, as you were saying before. I didn't have to change that much about it. There were other stories that I wrote in exactly the same manner. And when I wanted them to be real stories, I had to kind of put real characters in there. This story I never really had to do that with. So it's kind of nice, actually. Do you feel in any stage of editing your work that you do have to think in a more literal way, that you have to sort of not think in terms of a vibe and language and feeling, but do you ever find yourself forced to think in terms of more like, what does this character want? Or how does A connect to B? Because I think it can be difficult sort of oscillating between those two mindsets of that sort of irrational, intuitive art brain. But then you're also talking to people, you know, when you're editing work who are maybe asking more concrete questions. I mean, the short answer is it's a balancing act between those two impulses. I mentioned I'm working on this story right now that I've been pulling all this stuff out of it and putting new things back in. But the funny thing about putting new things back in is that it's created space to put all of these other things that I wrote years ago and cut because as I worked on the story and tried to take it from that art brain place to the more rational place, there wasn't space for them anymore. I think I'm having an experience with this one story right now, but it's the rational brain in editing the story, I think had broken it in certain ways and made it so that some of these images that compelled me to write the story had to come out. And so now I've found different ways of telling the story rationally, like different ways of making the characters relate to one another, different logical underpinnings for the story. And I think that they're better suited to the story maybe because I find myself putting all of these other things that have been cut back in. Yeah, well, that sounds like a, a nice full circle. Well, thank you, Zach, very much for being with us on Off the Page. And your collection will be coming in 2024, correct? In 2024. Yeah, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. This episode was produced by Isabel Edgar and myself, with support from Jackson Roach and Laura Davis. Thanks to Jonah Willigans for his supervision, and Christina Oblatza and Daniel Huluganga at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.